Welcome, you are listening to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast, where you'll hear fun, relaxed, and inspirational interviews with people who are really living the dream. I'm Dawn Fleming, an attorney turned alchemist, and your host for the show, coming to you from the tropical island paradise of Isla Mujeres, Mexico. Listen to conversations with courageous souls who've stepped out of their comfort zone and designed a new way of life. They'll share their experiences, wisdom and offer practical steps you can take to redesign your life overseas. Listen and you'll believe if you can dream it, you can achieve it. Okay, I'm here with Cliff and we are at a marina in Isla Mujeres and uh, we're actually boat neighbors and it's a great afternoon, sun shining and thank you so much for taking the time to have a little chat. Okay, well yeah, that worked out just great. Otherwise, I would be sitting on my boat doing boat projects because that's what us boat people do when we're not otherwise occupied with fun and frivolity. Um, so what should we talk about today, Don? Well, you have a pretty interesting background. I know uh, you've spent uh, some time, a lot of time in islands, uh, mm-hmm. in Marathon, living in Marathon for a while. And- uh-huh. Quite a while. 26 years 26 in years Keys. in Marathon, yep, in the Keys in Florida. And then uh, in the Bahamas, you said? Uh-huh, and several years in the Bahamas. The Belize, Guatemala, mm-hmm. and uh, here in Mexico. So, and you actually spend a lot of time on a boat. Yes, yes, lots of boat time. Uh, and we've traveled fairly extensively throughout Central America with the exception of Nicaragua. Pretty pretty familiar with most of Central American travel. Awesome. So um, you, you did some cruising? Quite a bit of cruising or a little bit of cruising? Or? Um, my wife and I have always had a boat. We were married at the age of 19. We've been married for 41 years now. And we bought our first boat when we were 20 years old. It was on the Chesapeake Bay. Didn't know anything about boating because we were from central Pennsylvania and our friends that we and, and acquaintances, our work uh, workmates, they thought we were out of our ever-loving mind. They had no concept of what cruising is all about. A boat is something and you row and you fish out of, uh, but the idea of a 35-foot sailboat on the Chesapeake Bay that we had intended to live aboard and sail to our heart's content just did not add up. So we worked our uh, respective jobs. She was in banking and I worked for an electronics company. And three years later, uh, the day came that we walked into our boss's offices and told them that we quit. And then we hopped in our truck and went to the Chesapeake where our boat was waiting for us. And on Columbus Day of whenever it was, way back when, we uh, slipped the lines and headed out for the open Chesapeake Bay to learn how to sail. Oh, my. Yeah, and we eventually sailed south. Um, A couple of years later, we found out that we were expecting twins. And uh, we were actually on, uh, on an island. Off of uh, off of Miami, uh, called Key Biscayne. We were Ooh, living lovely. on our living on our boat in Key Biscayne uh, when our children were born, 
Uh, they were born in a hospital. They, I say they're, they were born on a boat, but they actually came home from the hospital onto our boat, and they were raised on that boat. And since then, we've had many more boats over the years. And this past boat, now we've had, we've lived aboard for 15 years, uh, my wife and I. Um, our twins graduated college and moved to the mountains. Not not ocean uh, gals, huh? They were they were raised in the Florida Keys, fishing and diving and all the water activities. And as soon as they graduated college, they went right straight, straight for to the mountains. mountains. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, what made you decide to leave the U.S. and head to the Bahamas? Was that a, a long term plan, or just were, were you just going to go visit when you did that, or what was your Don, I'll have to tell you, first off, um, we have always been travelers. Um, when our kids were growing up, we would take extensive vacations. We've, uh, we've toured the U.S., Canada. We've, we've, uh, we've, we've been out of the country a number of times. We've always had a passport. Um, lots of travel. We're very comfortable traveling. And um, so we've always told ourselves that there will come a day in a person's life when you don't have the option of traveling. And that is when you settle down. The traveling days are behind you. Your adventure days are, are coming to a close. And I guess that's why they make the National Geographic Channel or the Discovery Channel or whatever those channels are. I don't know because personally we have not had a television for the last uh, 15 years. Um, we don't care for television. I don't know anything about the stuff that's on television. I don't care to know anything about the stuff that's on television. We almost got one when we were living in Guatemala. Um, we actually had one shipped down from the states with some other things that we that we had shipped down, but it never got installed, and we sold it to uh, another boater. <laughs> so we almost had a television. Oh, that's funny. So, how much time did you spend in the Bahamas? We were in the Bahamas. Well, we've been in the Bahamas off and on over the years. Um, when the kids were growing up, uh, we would uh, spend the summer vacation in the Bahamas uh, with the kids. And so we were very familiar with a lot of the different islands there and have our favorite little gunk holes, they call them, little secret little anchorage areas uh, where you can get away from the rest of the world and that sort of thing. When we set sail 15 years ago on our present boat, we headed for the Bahamas and we were there two years, but we would we would come back and forth the states quite a bit. So we worked there continuously. And then we decided to get a little RV. And then we sort of became snowbirds from that point on, where we would RV for several months in, in the summertime. And then we would spend the rest of the year cruising on our boat. We went back and forth to the Florida Keys and to the west coast of Florida and the Bahamas a number of times. And then we decided we needed a little more adventure and so we were going to sail to Panama. Okay. But we, we never made it to you Panama. You didn't get that far. You no. stopped, is that when you stopped off in Guatemala? We stopped in Guatemala. We had heard that it was 
is a very, very interesting place. There's a, there's a place there called the Rio Dulce, which means sweet river. And you, you sail up this deep water river about uh, 20 or 25 miles inland, completely surrounded by tall mountains. So it's very well sheltered. And it happens to be the hurricane hole for the entire Western Caribbean. And as such, it's a very, very international scene. Um, there's boaters there from all over the world. And so you get to meet some really, really interesting mix of people, diverse cultures. And so we thought we'd stay there for a little while and, and just kind of enjoy that. And eight years later... <laughs> you enjoyed it quite a while. Yeah. Eight years later, we thought we would make another change and probably leave Guatemala for... And that's what brought you here to Isla? That's what brought us here to Isla Mujeres, soon to be three years ago. So you said, uh, when we were chatting before uh, we started recording, you said you left your heart in, in Guatemala. What, what did, is that, you talked about the international flair of meeting all the people. I mean, what, is that what you're talking about, that you love so much? That's part of it, and also the culture. First of all, the Rio Dulce was such a tremendous base of operations for us. And the cost of living, it was so affordable. To give you an idea, here in Mexico, we generally figure that our cost of living is at least half of what it is in the U.S. And I'm talking about everyday, you know, day-to-day -day things. Go to the store and buy fruits and vegetables and, and that sort of thing. Not some of the expenses that the complicated lifestyle in the U.S. entails, uh, because none of that exists here for the most part. But if our if our expenses here are half of what they are whenever we venture to go back to the U.S. for a period of time, in Guatemala, our cost of living is at least half, again, as uh, less than what it is here in Mexico. So very affordable. So you're talking 25% of what you... 25% of what it would be in, in the, the U.S. States. Yeah, yeah. For example, our marina dockage, and we were at a beautiful marina. The, I would consider it the best on the river. It was its own beautiful, lush, tropical island, well-groomed, beautiful, tropical foliage, flowers, paradise. Swimming pool, tiki bar, and our dockage there, including electric and water was a hundred and ninety dollars a month now that doesn't mean much to people that wow. aren't boaters <laughs> doesn't mean much to people that aren't boaters but that's pretty low yeah that's pretty pretty low yeah and um so we could leave the boat there it's very safe on the island and we could uh, go to town and catch the first class bus for about six or seven dollars to guatemala city and we could connect anywhere in the world through Guatemala City, as well as catching any of the other first-class buses anywhere throughout Central America that we would want to travel. So, for instance, like when we went to Panama for a month, we, we didn't want to take a bus because that was kind of a long bus ride. Sure. And so we got a cheap flight out of Guatemala City, direct into Panama City, rented a car for a month, had our little guidebook and our maps, and we explored Panama for a month. And that's the same way that we generally travel anywhere we want to go. If we're going to take the initiative to go there in the first place, we want to be there at least a month to get the lay really of the land, the 
get to meet get to meet some locals uh spend some time just picking up the vibe Mm -hmm. and most places we go we've always had thought in mind of is this where we would eventually like to retire okay does it can we check all the boxes does it does it meet all the criteria of course our number one criteria has always been what's the price of the beer (laughs) (laughs) i love it spoken like a true voter absolutely yeah Yeah, you'll not want to go to bbi say (laughs) you know that (laughs) that is an early indicator and a lot of boaters will use that as an early indicator because if they know that they're in a place where the beer's cheap, everything else is going to fall gonna in fall. line. Yeah. $50 a case for beer in the Bahamas means that you're in the wrong place because <laughs> everything else in the Bahamas is going to be quite expensive. Yes. Yes. That was, has been our experience as well. So Guatemala was fabulous. You loved it there, but you still left. Well, yeah. During the course of that eight years, besides the travel throughout Central America, we took two years and rented a house in the high country of Guatemala, uh, nestled among the volcanoes. We were over 5,000 feet in elevation, and the climate is what they refer to as eternal spring. We were in a little town outside of the town of Antigua, former capital, colonial capital of Guatemala uh, a couple of hundred years earlier. A wonderful, wonderful, very internationally diverse town. It's it's hard to say enough about it. But we were in this we were in this small town and we had we rented a three-story, three-bedroom home that included a a Spanish courtyard and an additional maid's quarters. It had an outdoor laundry area that the Finnish call a pila. What, are, what were some other attributes? Oh, and a rooftop terrace that had a front and center view of a volcano named Fuego. And that means fire in Spanish. And this is the closest thing to Old Faithful. The geyser in Yellowstone National Park. This is the closest thing to Old Faithful that, I, that I've ever seen. Here's a volcano that erupts almost like clockwork. I mean, you can't set your watch by it. It's not as regular as Old Faithful, but every morning we would get our coffee, go up on the rooftop terrace, sit there at our cast iron table and chairs, and have our coffee and wait for the volcano to erupt. And I have many, many pictures of huge plumes of ash erupting into the air. It was our entertainment. So that's where we lived for two years and enjoyed it thoroughly. And the boat was still at the marina? And the boat was safe. We would, we would come back uh, every month or two. We would come back to the river, check on the boat, do a few routine maintenance uh, things, make sure that everything was, make sure the boat was still floating, right? That's always good. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the culture, I mentioned culture, and I want to I just touch on that and give you an example. From our little town, we would go into the main, I hate to call it a city because it's really more like a big town of Antigua, and we would take what they call chicken buses. We would take a chicken bus, and the chicken bus stopped at the square in our little town because every one of these Spanish colonial 
cities, as you has know, a square. has a, a square. Town square, sure. And there has to be at least one, if not several, churches right there on the square. These old, uh, very old colonial Catholic churches. Marvelous, marvelous architecture. You have to admire that. But one of the things that we found was, first of all, we would walk about three or four blocks from our house from the meet the bus, the chicken bus. So one of the things I should tell you about this small town, the name of the town was San Pedro Las Huertas, which basically means the orchard of San Pedro. One of the things about this charming little town was we were the only gringos. And the people could not be nicer. They would go, I don't want to say they would go out of their way. It's just their nature. It's just their absolute nature. And it's practically obligatory. We considered it obligatory to greet people. As soon as we would come out of the door and we're walking this three or four blocks to catch the bus, buenos dias, buenos dias, buenos dias, buenos dias, buenos dias, buenos dias. And of course, we get to know everyone and everyone gets to know us. So we're just about buenos dias out by the time we get to the bus. Well, the other, what we'll consider obligatory, I don't know if the if there's really a law about this or anything, but you find out in a hurry that this is the culture. It's expected. You don't want to be the aloof American that doesn't know enough to say hello. Okay, That's one of the things about the U.S. and about uh, our encounters with Americans on vacation that drives me crazy. To say good morning say hello, and they look at you like you've got three heads, and they're scared to death. It's like, what is wrong with you? Where did you learn this? Well, part of the American culture, I think. Um, so anyway, when you get on the chicken bus, or any bus, you're obligated to say good morning to everyone Every single on the bus. So let's say, for instance, there's an empty seat seven or eight rows back. Okay, so you get to the top of the stairs on the bus and you look down the rows of people and you say, Buenos dias, everybody. And the whole bus says, Buenos dias, in response. The chorus back. Yes, the chorus, the bus chorus. And then as you walk down the aisle, you look to your left and you look to your right and you say, Buenos dias, Buenos dias, Buenos dias, Buenos dias. By the time you sit down, You've got Buenos Dias the whole way down to the bus, and then you're thoroughly Buenos Dias by the time. Or I'm I'm assuming this is the morning bus into the right. into the market. In the afternoon, it would be Buenos Dias. <laughs> so you just have to love the friendliness of that culture. Well, and I find that here too, right? I think uh, for the most part, that's for the that's most the case. for the most part, it is even for, walking down the street. You know, yes, uh, Buenos Dias. There's a lot of that here. Yes. Every morning on my walk, and I do walk every morning, that is, that's what I encounter, uh, with the exception of the North American tourists. That, right. Yeah. <laughs> but all the locals, definitely. Yes. They're very friendly. There. Very friendly. Very friendly. So, so you left. You moved here from after living in that town for two years? A funny thing happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me touch on that real quick. What 
I'll say forced us to move. We dearly love that. But we did have the continuing obligation and commitment of the boat. And you know what that's all about. A boat is not something that you can just neglect. So it, it does demand a certain amount of care. Um, what we found out was that one of our daughters was going to be having her first baby. The grandchild. The grandchild. And this was in Colorado. And we realized that was going to require a lot of parental tender loving care. And that was going to keep us away for a prolonged amount of time. It had to do with the time of year that she was expecting. And uh, with us continuing to pay rent on the house and also continuing to pay our rent for our boat slip on the river, as well as regular boat maintenance expenses and, and such. And we thought at that point that it was probably a good idea that we move along. Okay. Because life is a journey, right? And there's times that you just hear the little whisper and it's like, you know, this has really been great, but there's great things ahead as well. And the next chapter. Yeah. And so that's kind of what pulled us along. Okay. Pulled, pulled us <laughs> <Right>. along. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it drags you kicking and screaming all the way. Right. That's right. <laughs> Good stuff. We'll be back in a moment. Isla Mujeres is a Caribbean jewel off the coast of Cancun. Castellito del Caribe warmly invites you to enjoy our spectacular oceanfront villa located in the heart of El Centro and a short walk to Playa Norte, which is ranked one of the top 10 beaches in the world. With an ocean view of crystal clear turquoise waters overlooking both the Caribbean and Cancun city skyline, we offer a fabulous location for you to enjoy all the peace and tranquility you're looking for on vacation, while also taking in all the excitement the island has to offer, with activities either in walking distance or a golf cart day excursion away. Please visit CastelitoCaribe.com, www.castillito. C-A-R-I-B-E dot com. We look forward to seeing you soon. Integrity Vacation Property Management. Trust, truth, results. From buyer's representative services to rental market analysis, staging, marketing, and full-service property management, achieving your goals is our top priority. Visit our website at www.integrityvpm.com and get our free guide, Self-Manage or Hire, a Property Owner's Checklist of Issues to Consider. Contact us for a free consultation to see if we can help you maximize the return on your investments. Integrity VPM, raising the bar in vacation property management. Welcome back to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And we invite you to subscribe if you like what you hear. So you've, uh, you've also invested in property overseas, and there's a lot of interest in that, uh, the folks that I talk to for sure. And it's interesting, some people have come, actually a lot of people have commented to us, oh, you can buy property in Mexico, is it a 99-year lease, do you actually own it? I 
don't know if you've gotten those types of comments as well, but you have a background in real estate, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. have, as does your, your wife, Chris. But you want, you want to talk a little bit about what, what prompted that? Uh, and you also own property in, in the United States as well, so it's not like you're against owning property in the United States, it sounds like, but also... Um, it was a fluke that happened three years ago. Actually, it was two years ago because it was, uh, it was like uh, January 30th um, that we acquired our, uh, our little mountain piece of paradise in western North Carolina. And I say that in jest because this, this thing is a, it's a, it's a real wreck. Um, but um, anyway, it's a fixer-upper project that we acquired and that has become what occupies us for several months in the summertime in the U.S. because we need our exercise. So that's our construction project. Uh, yeah, our background, my wife and I were both real estate brokers and we had our own real estate company. I was an auctioneer and I auctioned um, a considerable amount of real estate as well as conventional sales. We did lots of uh, property management, vacation rentals on the board of directors for a timeshare community. So that was our previous life and we gave that all up. But um, as part of that, I got involved in a real estate development project. It was 40 acres of beachfront in Belize. And that was very serendipitous how that all came about. And that's how I was introduced to Belize, the country of Belize in 1993. And Belize these days is much, much different than what it was in 1993. They had one foot in the Stone Age in 1993. There were no computers. If you could find a typewriter ribbon to go on the typewriter. Um, So it was very, very backward at the time, and it's come a long way since. Although I'm no longer enamored with Belize, uh, we still own a beachfront home there as a result of this project that, uh, that we became involved in. Um, we were tempted to buy a home in, um, in the Antigua area. We have quite a few friends that have bought homes there. And that's uh, Guatemala you're talking about. And that's, that's back to Guatemala, yeah. Uh, because there is a considerable expat community there, and also, as I said, it's, it has a lot of international diversification, which makes it a very interesting place, besides that local culture that we mentioned, uh, and the, so fact, the fact that there are 23 indigenous tribes of Mayan people who all have different languages and customs and clothing, uh, for the most part, they... They weave and dye their own clothing. They're very, very colorful people. I'm 6'3", and I believe the average Guatemalan must be somewhere around three and a half or four feet tall. So, so it makes it, those, those chicken buses I told you about, by the way, those are kindergarten school buses from the U.S. Okay. And uh, so that's a challenge, too, riding the chicken bus. But uh, yeah, uh, there is an opportunity for foreign investment. Several friends that have bought real estate in Panama. One 
has has built a home in Panama, and the other one that I'm thinking of, uh, they just bought a kind of a small farm property. I think they have eight or ten acres. So yeah, real estate investment uh, outside the U.S. is alive and well. What advice would you give someone who was uh, wanting to explore doing that? I would say investigate whether it makes financial sense. Let me give you an example. Okay, these people that we know in Guatemala that have bought real estate, and there's some some that we know on the river that own property, and some up there in the Antigua area. There's another area called Lago Aditlan up in the high country that's a, there's a good number of expats, and we know some people that have property up there. We never thought that it was financially feasible. And the reason I say that is, and I'll use it as an example, some very good friends of ours that used to be our neighbors in Guatemala, they rent, it's just a husband and a wife, they rent a two-bedroom, one-bath, little small home, separate living room, separate kitchen. Uh, it's it's the equivalent in Quetzales, which is the Guatemalan currency. It's equivalent to about $120 per month. The water bill is $2 per month. That's a municipal cost. And the first of the month, you go down to the municipal building and you pay your well, in this case, it would be 14 quetzales, uh, but you pay your $2 for your monthly water bill, and then you go down the street to the electric company and you pay your electric bill, which uh, typically would run us about uh, between 10 and $14 a month for, wow. for our electric. So to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on an acceptable piece of real estate that, and what I mean by that is um, what the average North American would consider a place that they would like to live because there are places where you probably would not care to live um, that are perfectly acceptable to many of the locals. So to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars just doesn't make any sense. Because the rents are so low. Because the rents are so low. Mm-hmm. And and quite frankly, there are instances where someone has um, built a, a very nice home somewhere. Let's say, uh, pick a country. Mexico, right? That's where we are. And someone has built a very nice home, and then for one reason or another, they're only able to live there for several months out of the year, or only choose to live there for several months out of the year, and they are happy to um, discount their rent in order to have someone there in order to do everyday maintenance sort of things that need to be done when you own a property. Right. Just like a boat, you, you can't just leave it there in the tropics without taking care of it. The maintenance. Exactly, exactly. But there are good investment opportunities. 
if you look at it from that standpoint, and that's the way I would have to look at it, I would say, or the way that I do look at it, since my, especially since my wife and I have our real estate background. So perhaps if someone were interested in buying, maybe you just go rent a place for a while. And I, get... I would certainly recommend that if someone is, is just getting started in offshoring, like I said, we've been we've been going out of the country for so long that for us it's just natural. But I know that there is that tendency to get cold feet. I think I think there people sometimes they'll actually have an intention to do something, but then when it comes to the next step, they get cold feet and they're not sure if they can do that and. Um, in order to, you know, I think in order to leave the U.S. for a period of time and travel and, say, rent a place uh, outside of the U.S. for six months, let's say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go travel Central America for six months, and uh, I'm going to live for a month here, and then I'm going to go find a place to live for a month or two here and, and just see what there is to see. Um it takes that action step. A person has to be able to step outside of their comfort zone. So how do you do that? I don't know, maybe little baby steps? Is that what you would recommend? Well, actually I love what you talked about with spending a month somewhere because you can go for a week and it's a vacation. Uh, nah. It's a totally different experience. Absolutely. As opposed to really a month, I mean, you know, you're going to the market, you're you're cooking, you're, like you say, interacting with the locals. And so I think that's a great suggestion. So, yeah, maybe if you have six months, a uh, month, you know, break it up into six one-month stays in different places to kind of get that, that local flavor. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I think that's a, a great idea to really get that more immersion uh, so you feel like more of a local, you're, you're getting that flavor rather than just a tourist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things one of the things that I've stressed a number of times and this goes back to to a former time um, when we like I discussed when we first set set sail and headed out into the Chesapeake and to points unknown and and here comes our big adventure and we don't know what's ahead but here we go. It was much more difficult back then. We had such things as bills that would come in the mail and bank statements that would come in the mail and long distance telephone charges. We did not have cellular phone. Sure. Uh, so we're dealing with pay phones and we're dealing with things like Western Union right. and um, general delivery mail service. And we would have to do lots and lots of planning in order to try and intercept our mail. Sometimes it would take weeks um, for us to just intercept a few pieces of mail that we had to wait for um, in some location somewhere. Yeah, definitely a lot more complicated. Uh, so, we have a mail service right now. Uh, we still have a U.S. Uh, uh, private mailbox. And they scan our mail. And we access it via email. And then we put it in a folder if we want the contents to be scanned. It goes in a scan folder, and within 24 hours, the contents are scanned. 
and then we can choose to save it electronically or have it held or have it shredded. If I have it electronically, I don't really need the paper. Yep. Right? And yep. so that saves down, especially on a boat. You don't have a lot of file cabinet space. It's been interesting to me over the years. My file cabinet space has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, my tax files, same thing, going to electronic. Uh, definitely a space saver. But yeah, it was a different world. Now, um, how cool is that? And I would maintain there has never, ever been a moment in history that it has been easier to travel and take care of all your business and have the freedom and the flexibility to have this kind of a lifestyle and not be tied down to one particular country. Okay, I am a U.S. citizen. My wife and I do hold U.S. passports. Um, so that's part of the equation. But we certainly don't feel that we're tied down. And until uh, that couple years ago that we got involved with that... Uh, uh, summer work project that I alluded to in North Carolina. We uh, did not have any property for a number of years in the U.S. And we sort of bought that on a whim. It was, We bought it at a foreclosure. We sort of discovered it by chance. We were very familiar with that area. We traveled through that, that little piece of the world in the western mountains of North Carolina, um, not too far from the entrance to Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Oh, it's beautiful. Traveled through, the, through that area a number of times. And so we were almost intimately familiar with this particular location. And to make a long story short, we bought ourselves a project for very little money on the courthouse steps. And so it's not like uh, it was a big investment for us. And it just kind of opened up a... Another little chapter, uh, little diversion uh, for well, our... Well, certainly a lovely place to head uh, outside the tropics during the summer months. It, it gives us a little break in the mountains for, uh, for several months. And, you know, one of the things that we were aware of in that area, because we had spent a fair amount of time in that area in the past, uh, looking at real estate, by the way, was that the people right there in that little piece of the world are so friendly. They are so friendly. And it goes back to the culture that I talked about in Guatemala, and this is the kind of a place where you go to the grocery store and... The cashier says good morning, and the manager says good morning, and you go up one island down the other, and all the people say good morning, and how you doing, and on and on. Next thing you know, you're involved in conversation and visiting. Uh, it's, uh, you know, life is short. Life is short. Life is short, and people are what, uh, people are what uh, makes it worthwhile. Relationships. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, um I, you've just been uh, very helpful with all this information. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up. But I just have one more question for you. Um, if you had the ability to give any advice to your younger self, is there anything that uh, you would you would tell yourself? Wow. <laughs> yeah, let me just say a couple of things, Don. 
and I don't know if this applies to my younger self or our children. We were really blessed to have twins. I wouldn't have had it any other way. It was very, very difficult. Twice as difficult raising twins. Actually, maybe three or four times more difficult than had we had single children, I believe. We had intended to raise our kids on a boat, cruising the world. And we found out that with twins, that was just going to be too much of a challenge for us. And when they were several years old, we were more or less forced to move back ashore, which wasn't a bad thing. We adapted because you always have to be adaptable. Um, but one of the things that we did for them, I told you that we used to spend a lot of time traveling and we used to call it broad horizons. And we made a point to always broaden their horizon. And travel was one of the ways that we did that. And our kids from a young age, they realized that it was a big, big, wide world out there. And that they were not bound to one small town or a particular, particular state or region or country that they had global opera that they they could consider for themselves and to this day they just that is one of their number one priorities they just love to travel and the other thing that we did when we were raising our kids we let them know from an early age that there was a point in time that we would no longer be responsible for them the way the world looked at their situation I should say the way the United States looked at their situation, actually, was that when they became 18 years old, they would have to be absolutely responsible for their own decision. And one of the faults I have with contemporary parenting is parents seem to lose sight of the fact that their children need to be taught that ultimately their life becomes their responsibility. And I've heard stories in the U.S. these days. There's many 30 and 35-year-old children that are living with their parents, unable to get a job in the career that they've studied for, etc., etc. And somehow I have to find fault with the parents that they never let it be known that those children ultimately had to take responsibility for themselves. And I see that a lot in the United States, and I feel very sorry for the United States for many reasons, but that's... Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, uh, because I agree with you. I, I think personal responsibility is, is pretty important. And of course, one of the responses is, well, it's too expensive to live in the United States for these children and so they're staying at home because they have student loan debt and you know oh we don't have a good enough job and, and all of this i wonder if those same children had they had their horizons broadened as you say would they be in that same situation if they really had the opportunity to see what your girls have seen the of, of possibilities and how inexpensive it is to live in other places and you know having more uh control than you think over your life and and where you can go and the choices that you ultimately have at your disposal. Yeah, there's one thing that they see. When you get outside the United States, it's quite common to see child labor. And I'm not talking about sweatshop labor. I'm talking about everyone has an obligation to contribute to the family. And you'll see younger people, in some cases it's five or six-year-old children, 
and it doesn't matter what it is. They may have a box of chiclets, and they get out there, and they're hawking chiclets, just as an example. Or a little girl makes little scarfs, and she'll make four or five scarfs, and she's out there at the, at the park or wherever people congregate, and she's going person to person to person to try and sell one of these these scarfs or little handicrafts that she's made. And that's that goes to help support and contribute to the family. And it's instilled in those children from an early age. And you just have to admire that. You just have to admire it. And those children, they're not afraid of someone telling them no when they ask them if they want to buy their chiclets or buy their scarf. They don't care. They know that if they ask 300 people to buy their scarf, they're going to sell all of their scarves. Right. And they're going to take the money home and put it in the cookie jar or whatever happens to it. And that's the way that they're raised. And I think that is very admirable. It's entrepreneurial, right? It's, I mean, that, it's, it's the epitome of entrepreneurship. <laughs> absolutely. And if I can say one thing about entrepreneurship outside of the U.S., let's do a quick comparison to entrepreneurship in the U.S. and entrepreneurship outside of the U.S., okay? I want to do something very simple. I want to make tortillas and sell them. And the reason I want to make tortillas and sell them is because I make the best tortilla that the world has ever tasted. It is the most fantastic tortilla, and they're all made by hand, okay? Now, in the United States, I'm going to make these tortillas, and I'm going to sell them. So the first thing I need to have is I need to have a business location, and then I need to have several business licenses, and I need to have a certificate from the health department. I have to have a business bank account. Of course, I have to have a tax ID number from the federal government for my business, etc., etc. Adds nauseum. We don't need to continue on because it just gets worse from there. Bottom line, how much have I invested in order to make a handmade tortilla that I think the world is going to beat a path to my door to buy because I make the best tortillas in the whole world. I've just spent a quarter of a million dollars and I haven't even made my first tortilla. Okay, that's the that's business entrepreneurship in the United States. Now, let's go to Central America. First of all, everybody in Central America loves tortillas, so that's not a problem. Got a good okay. market. Yeah, but what do I need to make tortillas? Well, they're handmade. I got two hands. I can handle that. Okay. The other thing I need is I need masa, corn flour, or I mean corn dough, actually. So for that, I need corn. So I go get some corn and I soak it in a, in a brine solution overnight. And then I take it to the local corn grinder, which is on every block. And I give them my corn and give them like, I don't know, two pesos or a couple of cents, and they go run, 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 run it through their corn grinder. And what I get back is a bucket full of corn dough. Okay, now I got my corn dough. All right. Now I take my kamal, which is a big, flat, almost looks like the, the bottom of a steel drum. 
and I make a little fire and I set my kamal on the fire and I grab a handful of corn dough and I start slapping it together and I put those little babies on top of that kamal and heat them up and the smell permeates the neighborhood and pretty soon I've got people coming wanting to buy my tortillas. Now what have I invested? A quarter of a million dollars? No, I bought a little bit of corn and I paid the guy two cents to grind it into dough for me and I'm allowed to gather sticks and I'm allowed to make a little fire and I'm allowed to have a little thing. And you know what? Here I am on a street corner with a fire, with a with a Kamal and making tortillas. And one of my first customers is going to be the local authority that comes by because he sees nothing wrong with what I'm doing. And he's hungry for my tortillas, right? He's not going to arrest me and throw me in prison for not having the proper licenses and and you have to admire that. So between the children out there helping to contribute at an early age and the real entrepreneurialism that when I was growing up, they used to look back in history and they used to call it, that was the great American free enterprise system. That was what made America great. And you know what? I thoroughly believe that 150 years ago in the United States, you were allowed to do what you could do in order to make a living and create those businesses that allowed America to thrive. But unfortunately, that you have to go to Central America these days if you really want to see it in action. <laughs> wow, what a great story. I got wound up, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. All right. Thank you. Great. No problem. Thank you. Glad we got it done. This episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast was brought to you by our sponsors. Thanks for tuning in. Did you love this episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast? Then please subscribe to our show and leave us a nice review. It's very much appreciated. We invite you to visit www.overseasliferedesign.com and take the Are You Ready for an Overseas Life Relocation Readiness Quiz. We'd also love for you to become part of our OLR community on Facebook. Thank you for listening.